Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Um, so quite a few years ago, my husband and I were on our way to, um, to New York City for, for a concert. It happened to be summer solstice, I remember, and we were driving from Connecticut down to, to Manhattan. And um, tragically, we were hit at high speeds on 95, and it was a very, very serious accident. The car did a barrel roll in 180 degree, and we got very smashed up, and it was the car was totaled with us in it, and it was harrowing, terrible, terrible, awful, awful, yeah. Strangely, um, I literally walked away from the accident. My husband did not fare so well. Um, he, he had a concussion and a pretty bad head injury, and, you know, there was broken glass everywhere and blood and, you know, ambulances and the whole nine yards. But after going to the um, emergency ward and both of us getting checked out and, and Jack getting stitched up, uh, we got home and what we did was we put on a CD of Ingram's music as we picked shards of glass out of our clothes and hair. And both of us felt having just looked death right in the face, what we wanted to do was listen to Ingram Marshall's music. Gosh, what would it be about? It's hard to verbalize why something like that was so clearly the right thing to do. Part of it was it's just so beautiful. Part of it is a kind of like maybe a sense of thankfulness that we were alive. There's certain things you just can't quite put into words. Um, I, I, I've always found really pretty much every piece that Ingram has written has this very deep, very spiritual, but also very expressive quality. I think the beauty of music has to do with how well it expresses something. I don't know what it's expressing all the time, but something. That's beyond music itself. After page, keep going, call that going, call that. This is Meet the Composer. Ingram Marshall's music is affecting. It grabs you at a gut level and doesn't let go. An Ingram piece unfolds slowly, teaching you its vocabulary but eventually revealing that its figures were never quite what you understood them to be at all. Ingram holds up his ideas at a distance and views them from every angle, patiently working through permutations until transformation occurs, some odd synergy or some recontextualization. 
when I was first introduced to Ingram's music, he was presented to me as a, quote, California minimalist, an innocuous-seeming phrase that holds a huge number of connotations about form, repetition, drone, world musical influence, and a lot more kind of negative stuff, too, which I'll get to in a minute. Because here's the thing. In America in the 1960s and 70s, there was some deep-seated partisanship. Kind of very, what's the word, ideologically oriented to be against serialism and for minimalism. Kind of almost like a political thing. And I'd like to say that this feud was respectful or all in good fun. But the truth is it was really, really nasty. I'm talking like Capulet and Montague nasty. So on the one hand, we had the modernists. They were writing music that was pretty much descended from Arnold Schoenberg, who was a turn-of-the-last-century Viennese guy who decided to basically gut-remodel all of the organizing principles of classical music. So key signatures? Gone. Sonata form? Gone. Chords? Gone. In its place, he made up something called the 12-tone system of composition. The music had a whole new, almost alien landscape and inspired, to date, a hundred years of really interesting music. The minimalists, on the other hand, they were also redefining music, but they came at it from a completely different angle. These guys like to focus on the beauty of small gestures, using repetition and simple mathematical processes to kind of emboss an idea into the listener's mind. But as I mentioned, these two camps just could not play nice. The modernists thought the minimalist music was too sentimental, too simple, too pandering, while the minimalists thought the modernists were soulless mathematicians. And guys, I'd like to say things were not this cut and dry, but this was a really crazy time. I even have a friend who suggested we treat composers of this generation the way we'd treat abused children, excusing the occasional outburst of bad behavior as a logical aftershock of deep trauma. Maybe it had something to do with how politically divided the whole country was at that time. I don't really know. Luckily, nowadays, most of this has quieted down. I mean, there are certain academic composers who just laughed at this new kind of repetitive music, and others are kind of like just plain didn't like it. A few of them actually were interested in it, so... It took a while, but eventually, you know, it just became part of the big mix. So here's the punchline. While his music definitely falls into the minimal camp, for a, quote, California minimalist, Ingram has spent surprisingly little time in California. The funny thing is, people who know my music refer to me as a California composer, a West Coast composer. And, you know, I don't mind that, because living in the Northeast in New England, you kind of, a little bit of that exotic thing isn't so bad. <laughs> He did spend some very influential years at CalArts when it was in its infancy. But Ingram is, fundamentally, an East Coast guy. Well, I was born uh, not too far from here, in Mount Vernon, New York. I remember bad things I used to get involved with when I was a little boy. <laughs> what kind of bad things? Oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> we were trying to derail the trains or something. Were you, like, squishing pennies kind of thing? Or? That sort of thing. We had, we had a gang, and we were very into, like, hanging out in these uh, railroad track kind of over... It's hard to describe. But anyway, I, I always think of that. That's where I'm from originally. Ingram didn't have a whole lot of focused musical instruction when he was a kid, but he did do a lot of singing, singing. and he played yeah, all I kinds of brass singing. instruments. Tuba, Tuba French, French horn, and trumpet. trumpet, that sort of thing. So, you know, nothing special. I didn't study piano until I was practically out of high school. Ingram went to Lake Forest College in Chicago, where he became fascinated with music history. Fascinated enough, in fact, to go get a master's in it from Columbia University. It was when I went to Columbia that I realized that I really wanted to be on the other side of the fence. You know, I wanted to be composing, not studying music that had already been composed by other people. You know, I was locked into the music history program, so what could I do? So, so what kind of stuff were you writing at that point? I don't know, a couple of string quartets, piano music, and... My second year at Columbia, I got into the electronic music studio, which was a big boon because I, I realized, my God, you don't have to have 
a bunch of people playing violins and cellos and things. You can just make it yourself in the studio. Kind of like paint by numbers, you know. So I took the electronic music class with Vladimir Usachevsky. That guy, Vladimir Usachevsky, was a really important early electronic music guy. He was manipulating tape as early as 1951, which is kind of crazy. He was basically Mr. Electronic Music in America in the 1960s. Wonderful man, very kind, very open to everything, and but a real romantic at heart. I always thought it was kind of ironic that he ended up being considered in the vanguard of experimental electronic music, which he was, but his music was very soulful and kind of Russian, you know. know, He's a great guy. I liked him a lot. So what kind of equipment were you working with at at that point? Well, they they had two studios. This is like circa 1965, 66. One of them became the fabled RCA, what do they call it, a name for it, the synthesizer. I think it was called the Mark IV or something like that, which was all you know, tubes and took up a whole room. But no one that I know actually composed on <laughs> And what was the other? Oh, well, then there was just the old, which became considered the dowdy old-fashioned analog studio, which is just a bunch of tape recorders, basically and some filters and some envelope detectors and this and that. And they were all, they'd all been brought together by Yusuchevsky and it was all cut and spliced. But there was this kind of handicraft idea that electronic music was made physically. I picture like a luthier, like a violin maker, just sort of sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit just about manipulating tape? Because I've never spliced tape. I've never made a... Yeah, well... the tape, of course, is about a quarter inch um, wide, and it's it's on reels. And the sounds are actually, if you had the right equipment to look at the way the molecules are arranged on the tape, you could see the sound waves. And so what you did was you, you moved the tape with your hands over the magnetic heads, which play back the tape. So you get these kind of... You can, you can get the very beginning and the very end of a sound by manually kind of moving the tape around. When you find the right place, you mark it with a marker, and you take it out and put it in this metal trough, and you slice it. And that's the beginning of the sound you want. Then you go back and you slice the end of it. So you can spend a lot of time in the, one of these studios just splicing tape together to get a very simple sequence of sound, something like boom, 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 boom. Would take you all the afternoon to do. So that kind of rarefied atmosphere, we're creating this new sort of sci-fi sound music, but we're doing it with our hands. Kind of a certain irony there, I think. So a really important thing to note about Ingram's time in New York is that he became, for the first time, part of a real community. I got to know other composers too there and became, you know, part of that gang. New music crowd. These were composers who were all working in electronic media for the first time. They were manipulating this technology in its infancy. And there was this real sense of discovery in that community. One person Ingram met around this time would become a very dear friend for decades to come. I'm Charlemagne Palestine, born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, in 1947, and I'm a... Uh, a maximal, schmaximal, uh, everything, everything, anything, everything person born in New York City, Brooklyn, but now living in Europe and loving it. After graduating from Columbia, Ingram spent a couple years in Europe, bumming around, seeing what the composers over there were doing, people like Ianis Sinakis. There were a few years in between where I sort of, I was like the wandering Jew. But then he came back to New York City, and he just needed a job. Whatever. In those days, there was this interesting record store on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street called The Record Hunter, where many, many people came to get records because it was one of the specialty stores that had all different kinds of records. And uh, Ingram was there. We, we came across Ingram in the shop. We were all salesmen in the evenings. 
So I was trying to go to every school possible in New York to keep out of the Vietnam War. And um, Ingram had just uh, graduated. And so um, we all became friends in this record store. Which On the surface, it didn't seem like the two of them had a lot in common. Well, that was always the thing. Ingram seemed so conservative on, on the surface. He was like a kind of goofy uh, professor in the best sense of the word. And I was like a bad boy. I mean, I was like a dingo. But in the end, he was always somebody who loved sort of alternative thing. And I was so very excited about the new media using tape and uh, tape recorders and making all these strange sounds. And it turned out he was actually doing that at a studio that I had heard about and read about on record covers, which was the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Studio. Ingram and Charlemagne become really good friends at this record store, sharing ideas about electronic music and manipulating tape. And eventually, once they were both out of school, they went about finding a place where they could both work on their ideas. Remember, this equipment is really cumbersome and expensive. You couldn't just build a home studio with stuff from Radio Shack. I think it was actually Ingram who might have been the connection to the uh, NYU studio down on Bleecker Street. Yeah, I got involved with this NYU Center for the Media About the Bleecker Street, Street Cinema, Street. which was a, like a, a beatnik bohemian part of the of the West Village. That was Mort Botnik's Intermedia Center, and there you could sort of be a funky sort of person. You didn't have to even be in New York University. I love New York City for a ton of reasons, but a big one is that this city is a huge polypsest. Hundreds of years of New York are piled on top of each other, visible in glimpses and gashes all over the place. The Bleecker Street Cinema, if you were wondering, is now the Duane Reed, not the CVS, mind you, one block east of the sometimes classical music venue Le Poisson Rouge. NYU Center for the Media Arts is a, a very crude, but nice to work with a collective of composers. What made the studio crude? Well, it's just, you know, haphazard equipment lying around here and there. You had to kind of hook everything up. But the great thing about that was it had the first Buchla synthesizer. All these which is the synthesizer by Don Buchla at the same time that Bob Malk was making his synthesizer. It's called the Moog synthesizer. They were sort of competing uh, synthesizers. But that's when people started writing a kind of boop, 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 you know, very kind of automatic sounding Electronic In those days, they, they were new magical instruments, which were too expensive to ever have yourself. And so we had to find these places where you were permitted to work. The NYU Center for the Media Arts was run in a pretty lax and creative manner by Morton Sabotnik. Sabotnik was about 10 years older than these guys and more established, but he ran a luxuriously loose ship. <laughs> came for a whole generation of us who were totally against teachers and, and disciples and students. And um, he, he didn't bug us with that. And he let us do our thing. And that's why there's a whole bunch of us that did very different work that come out of that period with Mort. So Mort Zavodnik was offered a job in California help start up this new school, California Institute of the Arts. This new Disney school. And he wanted to bring some of his students from NYU, people he knew, me, Charlemagne, Palestine. So, you know, being the 60s, we just went. I mean, I, did, I don't think I even applied to go there. I think I just showed I up. I think actually it's even I who decided to go first. I don't remember. I think he wasn't so sure if he wanted to go at first. Uh, there were lots of, like, sunshine and blondes in California, and there were, like, it was, like, it's the time of the hippies and Haight-Ashbury. That seemed like a more exciting place to be than to be in New York at that particular moment. So I said, shit, let's go live in California. Cal Arts scene is just, you know, hippies all over the place, smoking dope and... Having sex in, in, in studios, you know, whatever. Some people would compose a little bit, too. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about... Uh, then there was the swimming pool at CalArts. So I won't go into that. What, was, what happened to the swimming pool at CalArts? Well, we used to go take a dip into it in between sessions in the studio. <laughs> and the dip sometimes became prolonged into other things, too. 
So anyhow, I remember working at CalArts almost all the time at night. Mm-hmm. And the building was open 24 hours a day. You just had to let the security people know you were there. It was wonderful. I mean, I did a lot of my best, well, not just my best work, I did most of my work at night in these uh, kind of studios not much bigger than this room. But the idea of being in a cocoon and sort of working with sound, I, I used to think of it as like being a painter and being in my studio, I would just be working with sound like a painter might be working with color. What kind, are there any, uh, what pieces were you writing there? What kind of music? Well, the first piece I did there, which I really liked, was a text sound piece called Cortez. Whenever the world is supposed to end, it does. It's based on a short poem by a friend of mine. Within a month and a day of the end, the Aztecs about the conqueror of the Aztecs. I was actually teaching a class in text sound. I was sort of demonstrating my techniques with this piece. I was using it as a teaching tool, but it turned out to be a pretty good piece. So I did a series of text-oriented pieces from the 1972-73. That term Marshall is using, which is a little bit hard to hear, is text sound pieces. So he was creating musical textures using recorded speech as the basic building blocks. He'd take these recordings of speech and manipulate them into all kinds of unexpected textures. When we come back, Ingram takes a trip, finds his voice and plays with delay. At Q2 Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music, can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Tune in, won't you? Find us online at q2music.org. Last we left Ingram, he's fully ensconced in the 1960s Californian creative community working alongside electronic pioneers like James Tenney and Morton Subotnick. He's teaching classes, working late nights, and doing a lot of exploring, sonically and otherwise. That was the other thing about the music department. They had African musicians, Indian musicians, and both Balinese and Javanese musicians, and gamelons to go with them. I mean, it was also... That period of mumbo-jumbo, India, Gamelan, uh, Indonesia, marijuana, uh, Ram Dass, uh, uh, the Maharishi, uh, we were influenced and excited by that Orientalism, if you want to call it, or Indianism. The greatest thing that happened to me at CalArts was I, I had the opportunity of going to Indonesia with a bunch of other Javanese Gamelan people. And Ingram and I were both sent um, to, together out to Indonesia for the first summer that we spent, which was the summer, I think, of 1970. So I got involved in that, and it kind of took me away into a different world. So that for a year, maybe maybe two years, I was much more interested in that than I was actually in my own composing. But it had a, it had a big uh, impact on my composing. <laughs> Yeah, I went with a group of people. I think we were 18 altogether. Um, was sponsored by CalArts and pretty much paid for by them too. And we just we went to Java and spent about a week there and listened to some great old gamelans. And then we went to Bali and spent a couple of months and listened to gamelans from all over the island. And uh, it was a very uh, involved, involved kind of dedicated thing to have done. I think changed my life.
Gamelan is a type of Indonesian music, as well as the instruments it's played on, and may well win the prize for the most influential Eastern idiom in Western music. Ignore how awkward that sentence was, and let me explain. Way back in 1889, there was a World's Fair in Paris, the Paris Universal Exposition. This thing had a massive cultural impact. It was a huge step forward in, I guess, what we'd call globalization. While there was definitely a ton of trade between the East and the West at this time, tourism on that scale was really in its infancy. If you wanted to travel around the world, you had to do it in a boat, and it was a really big deal. It took a ton of time, and it was kind of dangerous. This expo essentially brought a ton of non-Western ideas to Europe. And musically, one of the big, crazy standouts here was Gamelon. The French were mesmerized by the Javanese ensemble that played the expo. And among its biggest fans were Claude Debussy and Maurice Ravel, both composers. This music is static and active at the same time. The textures are sumptuous, and the harmonies totally modal, and the performance is completely memorized. Debussy said that compared to Western music, which he described as a barbarous kind of noise more fit for a traveling circus, Javanese gamelan consists of the eternal rhythm of the sea, the wind and the leaves, and a thousand other tiny noises which they listen to with great care. So gamelan has this ridiculously crazy impact on both Debussy and Ravel's music. This is a movement from Debussy's 1903 work, Estal. This trend was called exoticism, and it's reverential, but maybe vaguely racist. It's actually a debatable point. In my opinion, though, the reason Gamelon wins for most influential Eastern idiom in Western music also has a ton to do with American minimalism. This probably all started with a Canadian composer, actually, and ethnomusicologist called Colin McPhee. He was the first Western musician to explicitly study Balinese Gamelon, and one of the most delicious results of this study are these fantastic two piano transcriptions of Gamelon that were premiered by him and Benjamin Britten, believe it or not, when they were both sharing a house in Brooklyn. Now, a gamelan is not tuned the way we tune, say, pianos for the most part over in this part of the world. It's a series of gongs and metallophones tuned in modes that we would call microtonal. But something kind of fascinating happens when you take this music and kind of bluntly transfer it to Western instruments. And there are some people who give this credit for instigating the minimalist aesthetic in North American music. From the moment Ingram Marshall heard this music, he knew his work would never be the same. This is a piece Ingram wrote for entirely Indonesian instruments called Woodstone, which he composed about a decade after his first trip to Indonesia. What I tried to do with the piece is find tunes from the Western classical canon that might somehow relate to the exotic tunings of the Javanese gamelan, which is what I was working with. And Beethoven's Waldstein sonata one day came into my head when I was driving across the Bay Bridge to a rehearsal of the gamelan. <laughs> you know, the big tune in the last movement. When I got to the gamelan, I realized I could play the tune, actually. So I based the whole piece on it, and that's the story of Woodstone, because Woodstone means Waldstein in German. Ingram's time in Indonesia changed the DNA of his music in a profound way, both in terms of structure and content and other more subtle factors. I didn't start writing music again until I got back. I brought with me a long bamboo flute, from Bali called the Gambu, G-A-M-B-U-H. But my interest in the instrument wasn't that traditional Balinese uh, repertory. It was in what I could do with it. So when I got back to California, I started 
using it in the studio and playing it and doing tape toy stuff and creating pieces that would have a kind of a live component and partially on tape. This moment right here, this is a key creative turning point for Ingram. He took this wooden flute, essentially a souvenir of his travels, and he was able to use it as his own voice in his pieces. So this is cool for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is the only instrument Ingram could perform on professionally. The rest of his performing life was in his childhood, in choirs, and back with his high school marching band. So for Ingram, the gambu is his real foray into an adult performance practice. Number two, he was interjecting a raw, completely human element into his music. Up until this point, Ingram's instrumental music was purely instrumental, and his electronic music was strictly in the box, as we say. There was no performance element. The piece was created in the studio and then played back as a recording. When Ingram started futzing around with the gambu, he was exploring a whole new idiom. He was mixing the beautiful imperfection of live performance with the expanded sonic palette of electronic music. Yeah, there was something very personal and private about the gambo where I felt I kind of owned it, especially when I played into a tape delay system and got all these different echoes. I did several pieces that used that technique, and they, I think they were my first uh, really interesting solo live electronic music pieces because they combined, you know, the raw and the cooked. This idea of combining the raw and the cooked, as Ingram put it, yielded a whole bunch of really interesting pieces. In addition to writing for himself, he wrote for a host of really close collaborators, bringing them into the studio as part of his creative process. So when you think about it, this is a pretty intimate thing, letting a performer in on these early stages of composition. So it was absolutely key that Ingram find collaborators he could trust. Like I've written this series of pieces for oboe and electronics for a wonderful musician named Libby Van Cleve. My name's Libby Van Cleve. I'm an oboist and English horn player, sometimes oboe demor as well. And I've worked on a number of pieces with Ingram and have had a wonderful experience with each of them. They're kind of collaborative. I mean, I generated a score, then we changed things, and what we end up with the, at the end of the piece is something sort of happy compromise. Uh, my work with Ingram really was just the fruit of a wonderful friendship. We really like each other. <laughs> I like working and, that way, especially uh, with musicians I like. And I think especially when I'm working with students, they always think of the work as sort of coming from the fruit of some great commission. But uh, in this case, with, with Ingram and me, it, it was truly just the, the fruit of a friendship and uh, a lot of shared interest and. There was no money exchanged. Uh, there was a lot of work exchanged. We worked very closely together in creating that piece. Ingram is very well known for his uh, fascination with Sibelius. I've just always had this thing about Sibelius. So I, once in a while I sneak something of his into one of my pieces. And um, turns out that my grandmother was a first-generation American from Finland. So we were very good friends, and we'd talk about Finland. And, and, um, and I think that the idea for doing Dark Waters just emerged very naturally. Ingram had the idea of using Swan of Tuonello, which featured English horn. That's a tone poem the composer Sibelius wrote in 1895, which is based on Finnish mythology. And he was very clear about what he wanted to use as a source recording. I remember that he, he did not want to use anything that was too recent and too squeaky clean. And finally, after much, much research and work, we, we found our way. Of course, you must remember that this was sort of pre-internet and when things were still a little hard to access. Um, we found our way to Yale's historical sound recordings, and he found an old analog sort of scratchy recording of Swana to Anella. And then uh, he generated some English horn lines for me to be 
playing. Um, they were all uh, derived from, from Sibelius's original piece. And he also had some ideas about uh, electronic processing. And as the piece started uh, taking shape, I, I would come home and I would say, this piece, this is, this is like confection. This is just like chocolate that is like the perfect truffle that is j just melting perfectly. I loved it. Then I, I would come home other days and I would say, this is, is absolutely divine. And so finally, it seems trite, but I, I, I finally decided that in my mind, Dark Waters was candy for God. elements you can hear pretty clearly in this piece, Dark Waters, is delay, taking material and folding it back on top of itself. Once Ingram started experimenting with live delays, I get the feeling he couldn't get enough of the effect of music harmonizing with itself. And in fact, that's one of the tools he uses over and over again in one of my favorite works of his, Hypnotic Delays. Um, so the, fir the first piece of yours that I think I ever heard, it might, might not be true, but it seems true to me, or the first piece that I remembered was the um, hymnotic delays. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons it stuck with me is because I had sang so many of those madrigals uh -huh. uh, when I was a you know high school kid at, um, actually at chamber music camp, we'd sing madrigals all the time, and it was just like a really fun sight-singing exercise. Shape note. Yeah, the, how yeah. long your savior, oh, how long? Right. So where, uh, had you sung those as, at some point, or did Not you discover really. them I, later? I'd, I'd gotten to know Paul Hillier pretty well. He's a wonderful, fantastic singer and director, choir director. But Paul had already heard my music, and he just said to me, I'd love to do something here, so let's try something else. So I spent about three or four days doing things with, with Paul and trying different delay ideas. He was, he was really into the delay thing. So that's how we got started. And then I somehow hit upon the idea of using these uh, New England shape note hymns or psalms. They're, they're mostly psalms, actually. Checking the mic. Hi, Sam. Checking the mic, checking the mic, checking the mic, checking the mic. No, not yet. Checked. Oh, there you go. Yep, perfect. My name is Sam Amadon, and I'm a musician, singer, and banjo fiddle guitarist. Awesome. Um, so basically, we're doing a show about Ingram Marshall, and he likes hymns and likes shape note stuff. Um, so what I would love for you to do is explain to us uh, a little bit about that tradition and, and what it looks like and what it entails. Okay, so shape note singing also known as sacred harp singing, is a choral singing tradition that started in New England in the late 1700s. And it's like a, it's a tradition that's spiritual words, religious words, but it's always been a secular folk tradition. And it's sung this traditional style, it's choral music, but people are singing in this very Appalachian ballad style, which is extremely nasal and, you know, chest voice and loud and, um, can you can you give us an example of the sort of nasal loud sound that you're talking about? Yes, um, from a song like Kedron. Go for it. Thou man of grief, remember me. Thou never canst thyself forget. So just that times, you know, 200 or 50 or 300 people. Well, there's people who love this music. They just get together every once in a while and they sing it. And the, the, 
they sing that at the top of their lungs, very loud. The, traditionally, it might be like a monthly sing in a community, so that might just be whoever's around that month, maybe 15 people, 10, 20. And in fact, the way it was created is that young people in the Puritan era in New England wanted to sing drinking songs and murder ballads, but if you were a good Puritan in New England, you couldn't do that without getting like you know in trouble. So they took the melodies to ballads. They took the melodies to folk drinking songs and murder ballads, and they changed the words to Isaac Watts and other kind of religious poetry. And then to make it even more fun, they added harmonies on the top and the bottom. Initially it was three-part harmonies and then four. And they had no training at all. So one thing that's really wonderful about shape note singing, this choral tradition, is that it's you know three- and four-part harmonies writing by these totally untrained you know, folk people of New England. It's like very primal. And uh, it makes this kind of sound that you you wouldn't say was pretty or attractive, almost ugly in a way, it can be, but right in your face. And the shape element of the term came from the fact that they use solfege, but it's a weird solfege that goes fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. And the fa is a triangle, and the so is a circle, and the la is a square. So the music is written on a staff like normal music, but each note has a shape. And it's sort of, it was just a way of helping people learn to read music, but eventually they started singing the shapes as well. And so you, sometimes you hear this weird syllable stuff where they're singing all the different solfege. That's weird. That's like deeply weird. <laughs> it's very strange. Well, my take on it, on it was I was a little bit of a punster. Like one of the one of the psalms is how long you you just said how long, dear Savior, oh how long shall this what is it this something bright hour dealing bright, because we know what the bright hour is you know <laughs> it's death. They had a positive take on it. And so I worked with the digital delay, so, you know, the whole idea of how long something might be, I kept stretching it out. After the break, Ingram moves to Connecticut, channels his inner John Cage, and goes on a mushroom hunt. Stay tuned. Please listen to Q2 Music responsibly. Do not listen for more than 16 hours without a break. Excessive listening may increase the severity of side effects. Side effects from listening to Q2 Music may include excitement, trembling, euphoria, advanced neoconservative postmodernism, elevated pulse, existential joy, hypertrophic dancephilia, and in rare cases, polyrhythmic atonality. If any of these systems persist for more than four hours after you have stopped listening to Q2 Music, consult a musicologist immediately. Nowadays, Ingram Marshall lives and teaches in New Haven, Connecticut, where he moved with his wife in the 1980s. He's an adjunct professor at Yale, though his influence completely belies his adjunctness. 
Actually, the first time I became aware of Ingram the human versus Ingram the guy who had written a piece on a Kronos Quartet record I had as a kid was after a whole fleet of his former students graduated from Yale and sort of flooded the New York new music scene. These kids, when they'd talk about Ingram, they went all kind of glassy and reverent. I got the idea that he was the kind of teacher you learned from simply by being in his presence. Lessons would stretch beyond the typical hour and somehow become hikes in the woods or mushroom oh, hunts. I think also we, we did some mushroom walks, didn't we? Or was, that, was that one of our we lessons? Did. They weren't... Um, <laughs> they weren't... I would say they largely were not fruitful. Um, but... There was, there was one occasion where he found a few morels in the spring. My good friend, the composer Timo Andrus, was one of Ingram's students for a while during his master's degree. And you very generously, there weren't really enough for, for two, <laughs> so you very generously let me keep them, and um, I made a little risotto. So he asked Timo to drive up to Connecticut with us for a this little home Andrus. visit. I'm here in Hamden, Connecticut, with Ingram Marshall at his house. Uh, we're in his living room. Um on the couch with uh, there's a, a fireplace and a piano and uh, some shelves of CDs and we're surrounded by sort of shade, shaded woodlands um, it's uh, it's it's a very bucolic scene I knew Ingram because um, I used to work in the music library here at Yale um, and he would come in, and I sort of, I knew who he was because I knew his music. Um, and he was sort of, sort of this elusive figure, like an elusive mushroom or something. And um, and I was I was a little intimidated to tell you the truth because it was like, oh, this great, great composer who, whose work I love. And um, then I don't, I feel like we must have just struck up a conversation at some point. Well, you know, I heard your music before I actually met you because. Oh, we we must have played uh, Shy and Mighty, yeah, or parts of Shy and Mighty. Well, I heard that, and that's how I first got to know you. I heard your music, and I was duly impressed. I still am. <laughs> um, so Ingram was my first teacher in grad school. We had weekly lessons, and then I feel like after that, even though we weren't formally studying together, we sort of continued to hang out. We used to go for hikes, and uh, I remember you used to drive me around uh, looking for old furniture, because <laughs> I was very into furnishing my apartment. You helped me buy a piano, remember that? After that, we, we, the student-teacher relationship kind of disappeared, we just became pals. Well, you sort of had a way of um, of doing that. I also do have a distinct memory of, like, getting beers. There would be, like, four or five of us composers who would hang out at Naples Pizza and get beers before composition seminar, which was sort of the co- weekly colloquial up, collo- colloquium. Sounds like you've had a few beers now. No, I'm just bad at uh, have poor addiction. Did we drink beer before the seminar or after? Both. <laughs> there was a period of about three years there where it seemed like the best of the best all came through Yale. Incredibly talented young people. I'm, I'm serious. They're really well, nice people, too. Like well, you know, there was... Um, yeah, I liked a lot of my colleagues so much, We and we all ended up moving to New York and making this collective, which we decided to call Sleeping Giant, which, of course, after... Well, it was sort of an Ingram Marshall homage in a way. Sleeping Giant is the name of a park near here that we used to go look for mushrooms in. It's a mountain that just rises up out of the plain, but it's not very big. It's only maybe 500 feet, but definitely has a kind of a mountainous feel to it. Timo's group Sleeping Giant rose out of a very ingrammy idea of learning composition by finding people you respect and just paying attention. That's what Ingram did at NYU and CalArts with Morton Sabotnik and James Tenney and what he would do later with John Adams and Steve Reich. And it's kind of his pedagogical method, too. 
This is in pretty stark contrast to that stuff I was talking about earlier, the almost politicized antagonism between composers in the 1960s and 70s, especially those who wrote different styles of music. something about being a composer in this notated tradition that we work in that it can be very self-directed almost too much so like it it just like cycles back in on yourself with each piece and it can be a kind of feedback loop in a bad way Uh, like you can sort of drive yourself crazy I think or just like hit a dead end um and I think, yeah, I think this project is sort of something that that gets us all out of that mindset a little. With you, I feel like it was more just sort of a free-ranging conversation. Mm, yeah. We'd sort of talk about music that we liked, and I feel like we played music for each other sometimes. Like, you played me the Kortog piece, um... Stella, oh, yeah. which is kind of an astonishing piece. It really is. It's a mystery. And I think I, I tried to get you into Boards of Canada, which I was very heavily into then. <laughs> There's something very Inger Marshall-y about Boards of Canada. I just, I think Ingram's a great model for how to exist in the world as a composer and as as an artist in a sort of um, refreshingly unegotistical and like generous way. I I guess there's something some, there's something about the Ingram tempo um, that I find very attractive and that I s- sort of strive for in my own work. I mean, I think I write way too much music. Probably, if if only I didn't have to pay the rent, you know, I'd I'd. Uh, slow down and uh having troubles paying your rent try the ingram tempo (laughs) yeah exactly ingram tempo just leave it at that (laughs) quasi ingram This is Timo on the piano in Ingram's living room, playing what he could remember of Ingram's piece, Authentic Presence. Timo is a uh, pianist too, by the way. Ingram Marshall has been writing music since the mid-1960s, and he's been teaching young composers for nearly the whole time. And when you think about it, that gives him a kind of strategically viable vantage point for observing the evolution of American composition over the past four decades. For one thing, popular music and world music has just become part and parcel of what kind of music people know and like. Obviously, minimalism has had a big impact on that generation, too. Philip Glass and Steve Reich and Terry Riley, they're like these um, kind of icons. And even if they don't like their music, they still see them as kind of progenitors. But I think this generation right now is into it all. They want it all and they, they do it all. And they're also very organized career-wise. They really know how to go out there and you know, beat the bushes and get attention. We might call it entrepreneurial activity. And none of us had that sort of thing going 30, 40 years ago. We were just clueless.
how do you make a how did you make a career as a composer? Well, it's very hard. I think it just depend on your parents giving you enough money for your health insurance. <laughs> no, I mean you really had to scrape things together. I'm not sure that's that different, honestly. <laughs> well, if if you wanted to teach and you were lucky enough to get a job, okay. But being a freelance composer was kind of difficult, but doable. You know, basically what I've done over the years, I think. So being, you know, a, a young person in the very sort of politically charged time, um, do you feel like music has a relationship to politics or needs to or, or can reflect that or shouldn't? Or Well, I, if you asked me this question some years ago, I would have said, yes, it should be. But uh, no, I'm not so sure. I would like to write a piece of music that would change something to the, for the better, but I know it won't. But I have written pieces that are reflective of something that might have happened, like Kingdom Come for orchestra and tape had to do with my feelings about the war in Yugoslavia because my brother-in-law, who was a journalist, went over there and got killed. tremendous impact on me uh, emotionally. And I, and I think I was trying to say something in the music that might have something to do with that, but who knows? I mean, you don't... You feel powerless sometimes, really, that you're going to make a difference. But I think if you want to try it, it's a good idea. And I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone, especially younger composers, from getting more involved. I'll say it if Ingram's not going to say it. I mean, it's emotional. It's a, it's an emotional kind of release in a very kind of romantic or expressive way. A lot of times, like in a piece like Kingdom Come, these quite intense kind of grief-stricken these layers keep on piling up. It's almost like a lament, in a way. Well, I admit it, yeah. My music can be very emotional, it's true. I never thought of my music as being particularly emotional. I just thought it was interesting and kind of pretty, kind of beautiful. And I did a performance in New York at a friend's loft. There were maybe a hundred people there. And when I finished playing, this woman came up to me with kind of tears in her eyes. She said, how, how could you know? I said, how, how could I know what? She said, how could you know how I feel? I said, I don't. She said, yes, you do. It's in your music. It turned out her husband had just died. She was dealing with you know, the early stages of grief. I had no idea. But she said, you really got inside of me with this music. And I, I was almost frightened by this. But it did open up some gates for me about thinking about what my music meant to other people and what I was really doing. How do you think your music has changed since you started writing music from then to now? I think it's more involved with expression, the idea that you're expressing something beyond the music itself. 
think when I was younger, I was more into kind of like the idea that a piece of music just stands by itself and has no relationship to the rest of the world. But I think my music has gone more in that direction where I'm, I'm not hesitant to think about and talk about my music as self-expression or expressing something. And uh, I think it's a natural thing, but sometimes it's hard to come to grips with that. So we're under so much pressure to create a kind of a pure art that just has this life of its own. You know, its form is its beauty. I think the beauty of music has to do with how well it expresses something. I don't know what it's expressing all the time, but something that's beyond music itself. Page after page, keep going, call that going, call that. A very special thanks to Alarmable Sound, who performed today's Meet the Composer logo in an arrangement by Chris Thompson. Special thanks also to Kim Nowaki for bonus Connecticut-based content. To complement this episode of Meet the Composer, Tune in to a special 24-hour stream of Ingram Marshall's music. You'll hear all of the music you heard today, plus a lot more, colored with introductions by the composer himself. You can find the Meet the Composer stream at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. To check out composers in their native habitats, go to q2music.org and search Spaces. Hi, this is Porter Anderson from Tampa and speaking to you from southern Italy. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at cutenewmusic.org slash meetthecomposer. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sorota and Alexander Overington. Additional support was provided by Carol Ann Chung, Hannes Brown, and Noah Kim. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our expert guests, Timo Andres, Libby Van Cleve, Charlemagne Palestine, and Sam Amidon. And to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 2 Kickstarter donors, including Ken Nielsen, Martha, Carol McClellan, Alana Stone, Anjali Fatima, Raza Kolb, and Andy Nelson. Amen. Ah,
beautiful sam thank you thank you for doing this i have a feeling we're gonna end with that shit right alex totally yeah okay cool cut to commercial cut to commercial and scene (laughs) 